he called me up in the morning. Like I was still sleeping. I was like, okay, I better answer this. And he was like, dude, we're nominated for a Grammy. And I was just like, no, that's a mistake. They got it wrong. They they don't know. It's some other wood in something else. Or like, so it was, it was totally, yeah, it was, it was completely blindsided us. Hey everyone, it's Keith Billick here. It's nice to be with you for an episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. How's everybody doing? Is everyone coping with their February-induced cabin fever okay? I uh, I have cabin fever, of course, brought on by winter and also other quarantine factors, but I'm trying my best to make the most of it. I, I actually referred one or two episodes ago that I was doing some recording and I'm, I'm here to give you a few more details about it because it is podcast related and it's exciting because I'm going to have after almost three years of doing this podcast I'm going to have some new theme music and it's actually the the same theme uh the the same piece of music but I have re-recorded it as a full band piece with some of my really good friends and some of my favorite players. So th- there will be two new tracks available. The If you've noticed, there's a, an intro song and then a, an outro song at the end of the podcast, at the end of each episode. And so my friends and I recorded re- remotely, of course, you know, social distancing and everything. We recorded those two tunes and those are almost ready and I'm excited to share them with you, but uh, just not quite. So... That's pretty exciting. Some other things I'm doing, I just ordered some new merchandise, restocking the old uh, t-shirts and adding some new exciting colors. Of course, I'm looking forward to seeing those and offering those to you. I'm also revamping my Patreon rewards. A lot of you, if you are already a patron of the podcast, you got a note from me saying that the rewards will be changing soon. And I also put out a post on the Facebook group. If you're on Facebook and you're not a member of the group called Picky Fingers Listeners, Fans, and Friends, please join up. That's where we talk a lot about banjos. We post cool videos, uh, offer advice to each other. It's it's really cool. But I offered the question, what would you like to see as new Patreon rewards? And uh, new theme music with maybe some tablature or lessons was uh was one of the responses so that i think is definitely on the table uh definitely some merch and probably some video chats featuring either me and or uh possibly some very special famous banjo guests as well so a lot to look forward to and a lot of things that i'm planning so uh stay tuned for all that I will, however, be keeping the reward that allows me to personally thank the extra special patrons on each episode. So this episode, I have two patrons to thank, and I'm only uh, too thrilled to be able to do that. Uh, The first patron of today's show is Dan Shaw, the banjo player for the Milwaukee-based group, the Millbillies. And he really just wanted me to give a shout out for the band and tell everyone that they have a new album out. So support your fellow Picky Fingers listener and go check out their recording. And you know what? I was actually just writing up the the notes for today's episode and flipping through my newest episode of Bluegrass Unlimited, and they have a write-up in there too. So uh, Dan, congratulations on the exposure that your that your band's disc is getting. I hope it's going really well. And of course, thank you for being a patron. The other patron of today's show 
is Julie Colton, who is a banjo player, probably the only one in her small English town, and she enjoys listening to the podcast while she's out running. And And I responded that I'm really sorry that I'm not more exciting to listen to while she's running. So, Julie, I have this message for you. Keep it up, straight out. Come on, you're almost there. Just a little bit longer. You got this. Let's go, Julie. Keep it up. All right. Looking good. Relax the arms. Almost there. You got this. There you go, Julie. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a patron. And for anybody else who isn't running right now or didn't need that type of motivation, I'm so sorry. When it's your turn to be a patron of the show, you can dictate the uh, the message somewhat. So there you go. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Dan. For the rest of you, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and you can become a supporter as well. The other things that really help out, like all of the social media things, I'm on the Facebook, I'm on the Twitter.com, I'm on the Instagram, I'm on YouTube, and you know what to do. The more times you can like and rate and subscribe to things, that all helps a lot, and I really appreciate all that. featured guest is the banjoist Trevor Smith from the band Wood and Wire. Wood and Wire is an Austin, Texas-based band, and they do a great job of spanning all sorts of territory. Some songs you get some spacey, jammed out, improvisational type of stuff, and then they have a whole bunch of really great down-home solid songs, and part of my favorite aspect of their band that I talked to him about is just their cool arrangements. They always have little twists and little rhythmic variations that really keep the listener engaged. And uh, I really dig their band, and I dig Trevor's banjo playing a lot too. And before uh, we get too far in, I do want to say that Trevor is based around Austin, Texas, and we all know why Austin has been in the news this last week for those terrible winter storms and power outages I did check in with him, and I'm happy to report that he and his household are doing just fine. Apparently, they didn't even lose power. They were very lucky. So Trevor is fine, and I I sure hope any other listeners out there who were affected by that are are also in okay shape. Um, Just wanted to throw that out there before before the episode started. But yeah, Wood & Wire, they're a great band. They were actually nominated for a Grammy for their 2018 album titled North of Despair. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy hearing about their music and hearing about Trevor's playing. So here you go, Trevor Smith of Wood & Wire. Tucson, Arizona, and I grew up playing piano, classical piano, and by about eighth grade, I was kind of getting bored with that and expanding into jazz, and that was at the same time that uh, my parents 
convinced me to go check out a bluegrass festival, which I had never heard of bluegrass music, knew nothing about it, but I was always interested in other styles of music. So I went to the Tucson bluegrass festival. And as I said, like I had just started kind of branching out my musical tastes and, and uh, yeah, I saw bluegrass for the first time, which totally blew my mind. And the banjo more so mystified me of all the instruments. I was like, that thing doesn't make sense. And I want to figure that out. That's uh, so cool. So a, a couple, a couple things to ask for one thing, how, how old were you when this was, when this was happening that you went to the bluegrass festival? I think it was 13, 13. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was 13. And your parents encouraged you to go. Was that something they were already into or were they just kind of curious, similar to you? Yeah, they were, they both grew up like my mom grew up going to bluegrass festivals. She's from Wisconsin originally. And, uh, so she grew up seeing like John Hartford all the time. And, and, uh, that was like her favorite person to see at bluegrass festivals back then. And my dad grew up playing. I mean, he started playing when he was playing mandolin when he was in his like 18, 19, 20 Mm -hmm. age group. Uh, and he grew up in upstate New York uh, okay. which, which, uh, I knew he had a, some bands back then. And, and recently I can't remember where it was. It might've been an IBMA where I ran into an old friend who had said that his old band opened for Bill Monroe. Like, so I, he, I guess they did all these shows that I just never knew about. And I talked to my dad about it like recently and he was like, Oh yeah. Like they played right before Bill Monroe. <laughs> How could he have forgotten to I mention know, that? I know. Like that, that, should be the fir- that should be the first thing that comes up. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, they were into it. However, uh, my dad had put his mandolin in the closet, I think even before I was born. So, huh. I didn't even know he had a mandolin. And I don't remember ever hearing bluegrass played on the radio at home until they brought me to this festival. It's I think my interests sort of reignited their their like interest that they grew up with it. So, cause growing up, I feel like I remember just kind of hearing a lot of classic rock was the kind of stuff they would play on the radio. Yeah. How interesting. Do you remember which, were there any acts that were at that festival in particular that caught your ear? Yeah. Um, one of the bands, it was a local band that was a group. One of the people, uh, his name's Ben Sandoval. He, he ended up, becoming a good friend of mine and he was the main promoter of all the festivals in Arizona at the time. And the banjo player in that band, uh-huh. uh, was his name is Rudy Cortez and he's mm. five time Arizona state champion. And he was the one who ended up being my banjo teacher, but that was oh. the first band that I saw. So like the first banjo I heard, I ended up learning from that guy, which was oh. cool. And then uh, other than that, the other bands that really were highlights for me were, uh, did you ever hear that band, The Grasshoppers? Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So they were playing, uh, I think Jeremy Garrett was in the band at the time. That was Jeremy Garrett's band. Patton Wages was the banjo I player. Even, I can't even remember, but they were amazing. And then, yeah. uh, and then the Cherry Holmes family band was also, like those okay. were the ones that kind of, I was like, oh man, those bands are so good. And what do you think, it, What you mentioned that it was the banjo in particular that caught your ear, what do you think it was about it that drew you toward it? It was uh, just that it's like so weird. <laughs> like it, <laughs> I hadn't, uh, you know, it's, it's possible if the first band I saw had a dobro in it, maybe I would have 
been like, that's weird. I want to figure that out. But, uh, right. No, I mean, it, it, that it was weird that there was so much sound coming from it and I, it looked like, uh, their fingers were barely moving. Every banjo player I watched all day. And that just, I was just like, how is this, how is this happening? You know, it, it just, yeah. uh, but also in the intensity of the instrument, um, you know, like, uh, at the same time I was starting to play in, in punk and hardcore bands and there was sort of an edginess to the sound of the banjo that I immediately was drawn to as well. So were you doing, uh, what were you playing in punk and hardcore bands? I assume not piano. I actually had uh, a hardcore band that we, we were kind of a keyboard core band. So Ooh. we had like uh, two keyboards and we, we got like the crappiest keyboards we possibly could. Just, <laughs> to, just, we wanted them to sound horrible and we would run them through lo-fi. Yeah. <laughs> we would run them through like full stacks, like through distortion pedals and just like oh that's hilarious and my brother played guitar in it um but that was sort of like the most i think that was the the only band that in the hardcore realm that i was in the longest and that band only existed for like maybe a year but i went to a lot of hardcore shows i i was really and still am really into to hardcore and so there there's something that reminded me of sort of that edginess that bluegrass has not not even just the banter just the sound like the the drive, you know, just that intensity, that, that right, little bit of right away, teenage like, aggression that sure, needed to get out or something like that. <laughs> sure. As, coupled with like the interest that I had in sort of the, the skillful playing of jazz musicians and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Right. How, how did that parlay then into you actually owning a banjo and, and hooking up with, did you say his name was Rudy? Yeah. Rudy Cortez. Yeah, so at that festival, I was so interested. My parents bought me a banjo that day. Like oh, wow. the, we went to a booth, and there was like a. I still have it. I don't even remember what brand it is, but it was like ninety dollars or something like that. And uh-huh. uh, so they just bought me that, and then got, I got a teach yourself how to play banjo book or something like that. One of those mm-hmm. Mel Bay books, and yeah, I absorbed that in like a month, and then it was pretty quick that my parents were like, "We're gonna need to get him a teacher." And, it just worked out that we had somehow were able to cross paths with, with Rudy and he was interested. And at the time he was living in Phoenix, but he was doing a lot of work in Tucson. So he would come down once a month or once every couple of weeks and, and yeah, we'd sit down and work on stuff. Nice. What, uh, what were the main things that you learned from him? If you, if you kind of look back at it, what do you, what do you think he taught you that you're maybe even still using today or that helped you really build on your skills? A lot. Uh, he, he's a really cool guy and, and was a great teacher for me at the time because I was coming from like classical and jazz and I knew I wanted to do more than just bluegrass. I knew that right away, but I was really interested in getting good at bluegrass first. And he uh, was a very traditional bluegrass player. So okay. he was great for just grilling me on all the like traditional things that I needed to be learning, all the Scruggs licks. And he was also like really into sort of like the Warnick style and some stuff like that. So kind of, I think that at that sort of period of banjo playing where there were some more melodic ideas mixed in and stuff. And, and, uh, he kept me on that path and, and making sure that I was learning all of that, but also encouraging me to do get as weird as I wanted to. 
Yeah, totally. Were there any other banjo players after after you kind of caught the bug? What else were you listening to that you think influenced your style? The big ones were, uh, um, I mean, eventually it was like Scott Vestal and Allison Brown. Um, mm-hmm. and then, and then Bela obviously was like the main, yeah, the main one, which was funny. Cause I was in when I f- like first before I even that year, when I got that banjo and first was introduced to the style, I had joined an after school, uh, like extracurricular Dixieland style jazz band where I was huh. playing piano. And one of my good friends, who's an amazing woodwinds player, uh, was playing banjo in it. <laughs> and so that was the, actually the first time I had heard the banjo, but it didn't in that style. I was, I was just kind of like, whatever, it's kind of like a guitar, I guess. And, uh, he was doing the, the yeah, strum, the strum stuff. Type, yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> so it was like at one of those practices, whenever I was like, dude, I got a banjo, but it's a five string and I'm learning bluegrass. And he was the one that was like, you got to check out this guy, Bela Fleck. And so that he like burned me the live art CDs. And I just, that I was just like, this oh, is it. Great. This is it. This is what I, <laughs> this is what I want to learn. Take it from there. Eventually you, and this is probably skipping a few steps, I realize, but eventually you hook up with the guys who you play with now, or at least some of them. How did that all come together? Yeah, that was about eight years ago. So I had moved to Austin to tour with a band called Green Mountain Grass, which I toured with for a few years when I was 18 and 19. So that's what brought me to Austin. And then uh, at a point when I was not touring with anybody, uh, actually it was around the time I had just joined another band, but I started a bluegrass night, like a weekly bluegrass night with a couple friends. And um, I went on tour with this band, the Asylum Street Spankers. And when I came back, Tony, the guitar player from Wood & Wire and Dom, the bass player, they had started coming to the bluegrass night. And so that's how I met them. I just was like, who are these guys? I've never, never heard of these guys. And yeah. And that's when kind of when we started picking, I was immediately, I was like, oh man, I love playing with these guys. And uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So that's kind of where that started for me. So something that I've always admired about your playing is it, you seem to just have a lot of um, pep to it. I don't, I don't know if that, uh, <laughs> makes sense to you it's hard to think of your own playing like that but um yeah there's there's just a certain uh bounce and excitement to it
eyes blue steel. She don't need no man to slow her down to take the wheel. Was there anything in particular that you did to achieve your your sort of timing that you that you have now? <laughs> Lots of time with the metronome for sure. Um, what sort of what sort of stuff would you would you do with that? I mean, I guess this is a good time to really just anything, just uh, maybe just noodling on a progression or something. And just, you know, something simple and, and just noodling with okay. that. Or, uh, or sometimes I would um, throw it on like a... A, a slower speed and play just single string, single string, uh, 16th notes, anything I want, any note I want, just. Just whatever, you know, just, and, and sort of speed that up, uh, over time. Just. So the goal of an, of an exercise like that would be more just to lock in with the metronome rather than playing notes that work with a song or a progression. It's, it's just about internalizing the timing. Is that, yeah, getting it, getting a steady fair thing to say. Yeah. Getting a steady, uh, yeah, steady pulse going. And honestly, that was something that I think took me the longest to get, uh, I think well into playing professionally, my rhythm was still shaky, really shaky. Hmm. Yeah, not very steady. Yeah, I think it's something that I, you know, I I think probably most musicians that are always trying to strive to get that really just even spaced pulse. And the better you get at it, the more you can articulate your ideas cleanly. And I think for a long time as a younger banjo player, uh, I feel like people could tell that I had interesting ideas, but they just they were muffled or jumbled or, you know, kind of gibberishy. And the more I played, the easier that was, the, the more that came eventually. Also, not just the metronome, just playing a lot, you know, playing gigs all the time and practicing. And, and uh, yeah, I did, a, I lived in Boston for a short period of time where I um, was playing in the subways for a living. Okay. And then I would gig at night. So I would usually start the day with like a few hours of kind of shedding a song or something. And then I'd go play for five hours in the subway. And then I'd go play like a three hour gig at night. Oh, um, wow. That'll whoop you into shape. It it did a lot. I was there for six months and I think I learned like three years worth of knowledge in those six months just doing that. Oh, man. And then I got really bad what? tendonitis. <laughs> it. What do you think caused that? I, I, I'm guessing that it was probably like overplaying for the subway. Definitely. Playing a little too hard, which I will say it, it was good to learn uh, sort of how to get volume without needing to use a lot of pressure or like tension. And I don't even know how to explain to do that other than almost like go play a bunch of crappy gigs in, where, you can't, where you can't hear yourself. <laughs> You know, situations like that where you yeah. you just you learn to be efficient. You you just kind of subconsciously absorb that. That helped a lot too with just having a more clarity with my playing. Do you think it's a matter of 
like finding a sweet spot on the banjo itself where it Definitely. I don't know where where your every ounce of um effort you use is just more efficiently transferred into sound. Yeah, definitely a sweet That's spot. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a sweet spot. And then another thing that I learned, uh, I went to one of the Rocky Grass Academies, I think when I was like 18, and mm-hmm. Gnome was teaching at that. And uh, he was the first one that uh, told me not to do sort of what you're told all the time, which is to play like square to the strings with your picks. And instead, try mm-hmm. and find an angle where you can get like Sort of like a you know square to the strings. It's a little scratchier, but if you kind of go more extreme, it's really thuddy. So you sort of try and find that that sweet spot where it's where it's like almost like a piano hammer hitting a string with right. with it's rounder with yeah. that brightness in there as well. And and uh, I think that helps a lot too, just to get um, a really solid, cleaner sound. Wow, that's really cool. I haven't. I mean. I'm aware that it has that effect, but I guess I haven't put that much thought into trying to find a different way of doing that. So, so at this point, your typical playing position is not yeah, parallel to the strings. It's not. It's, yeah, it's, at an angle. it's sort of at an angle. And and I guess I knew that that's what you're supposed to do with a flat pick. And you know, like it just kind of. Yeah. Whenever Gnome suggested that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like. Yeah, it's, sure, it's, it's so obvious. Sure, it's metal on metal, and that's a different thing. But, but, uh, but it works. You know, it does the same thing. And and I tell a lot of students to do that kind of like try both extremes. You know, just to hear the difference, and then sort of find where you're comfortable with it, where you feel like it's uh, yeah, it's like a clean tone that you want. You know, and there's not a lot of scratching yeah. too. You know, trying to eliminate that. But um, the other thing that I noticed um at a point was that I was able to get more volume and my fingers were moving less. And oh, I don't know. Uh, it's like another one of those weird things that I, that I try and explain to students. Cause that's a very common thing. You know, it's like your fingers want to go crazy and, and it's right. It's uh, I think for me, it's, it was just one of those things where I was playing so much that eventually it sort of naturally started to clean up on its own in a way. But uh yeah, I don't know. Whenever I notice, like, wow, I'm able to play a lot louder these days, and my fingers aren't moving near as much as they used to. Oh, that's really cool. And that that has that part has stuck with you. I focus on that now. Now that's something like it's almost like it was subconscious before, but now it's something that I want to get better at if I if I can in any way. And are we talking just right hand, or is there a left hand aspect to I, that type of efficiency? I, yeah, too? I try to do that. I, mean, I feel like my left hand is where I'm the weakest. <laughs> like, uh, oh, really? someone like Bela, I feel like his posture is like uh-huh. in a, in a way where it looks like it doesn't change much. And I feel like when I'm playing, like, and I see pictures of myself or a video of myself, I'll see my pinky like way off the neck and my hand just okay. kind of look a little flat like that rather than arched, like yeah. sort of flat to the neck. I, that's stuff that when I see that, I'm like, I need to keep focusing on that. Just trying to keep, sort of more of a where my fingertips are ready to like play without having to put a lot of pressure on it, if that makes sense. And I think when you're, when you're flat to the neck, you're kind of like, you have to push harder against the strings, which feels really inefficient. Have you ever tried to play 
things that you would normally play with your first three fingers with your second group of three fingers? I've never tried that. That's a, oh. that's a great idea, though. <laughs> it sounds kind of it's sounds like torture. <laughs> that already like kind of hurts. It feels weird. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> weird, but it's a it's a way to like give your pinky a workout and maybe train your hand to. I don't know if it helps or no, not. No, that's a cool idea. It's just something that that helped me. Other than the the physical aspects of playing, is there anything that you think playing in the subway taught you? I'm always like really curious to hear from buskers and street musicians about how it maybe shaped their, I don't know, just their approach to music and their approach to entertaining people and getting people's attention. That was a big part because um, I've always... I've always really enjoyed and felt most comfortable sort of being a side musician and not being mm-hmm. the focal point. But at this point, you know, I was, I knew this was a way I could make m- money playing music in a town I knew nothing about. And it was just kind of, I had a friend who was doing it too. And I was like, I'm not going to get an amp. I'm not going to do, you know, I feel like that'll add to the appeal and the band is a loud instrument. So I'm just going to have to challenge myself to, to overcome that and uh, also overcome just like having the confidence to think that I could be an entertaining show person, which was not yeah. what I ever really felt comfortable doing. And also singing. I didn't really sing at all before then. And I was like, I have to sing to get to grab people's attention. So, and not just that and you were doing, <laughs> I had to sing loud, which like, you know, it was like, Oh yeah. So it was just, it was, it was good for all those things. I've had a, a couple students where I've thought about like, all right, they're really good. They just need to get that clarity, you know, that next thing, that, that volume, that attack. And I've thought about being like, go, go play on the street for a while, you know? And then, but then I've second guessed myself because I'm like, well, then again, that easily could have been bad for me at the same time. You know, like I'm lucky I didn't develop a bunch of bad habits. And I think that's because I'd already been playing professionally for years. So I had already been working on, like reining it in and not, not going into catching myself when things aren't working. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's a good point And probably, (laughs) probably wise to (laughs) can imagine a bunch of like students pissed off parents. Why is my child out on the street corner (laughs) saying that you told him to? (laughs) Totally. It's funny. Like probably the better thing to do is just, just play, play some gigs that, that helps a lot. Hey, sorry to interrupt everybody, but I just couldn't resist an opportunity to tell you about the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments, and that, of course, is Elderly Instruments, which is a family-owned business located in Lansing, Michigan. But if you're not in Lansing, that's okay. They ship worldwide, too, and they just have a vast selection of acoustic guitars, electric guitars, ukuleles, mandolins, all the accessories and books that you'd want for either of those. And, of course, plenty and plenty of banjos. And something that people don't often think about when you're buying stuff like that, particularly entry-level instruments, is the fact that they have a world-renowned repair shop as well. When all those instruments come into the store, if they do not pass a thorough setup and inspection by the repair shop, they get sent back. And that sometimes angers the suppliers of elderly instruments, but it lets you know that elderly stands by their products and they also have a helpful and knowledgeable sales staff to help you find what you need, and you can be confident that you're going to get something that is set up to elderly's high-quality standards. So 
If that sounds great, and I know it does, check them out at elderly.com or call 517-372-7880 to speak to one of their helpful salespeople. It's where I go, and it's where you should go to. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses, perfect for quarantine, by the way, but they have courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. For example, listen to some of the courses. These are just the banjo courses that they offer. Uh, a couple different classes with Bill Evans, such as beginning banjo and bluegrass banjo. You can learn claw hammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and also contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wesley Corbett. And each of those courses includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. So it's everything you need to up your skills, especially in these isolated times. And listen up, because this is the best part. If you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, you're going to get your first month free by going to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's Picky Fingers, all one word, all lowercase, at pegheadnation.com. Check it out. So I, I don't know if you'll remember this, but the way I became aware of your group is uh, we met at IBMA and we swapped uh, CDs. That's back when I was playing in Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies. And oh, I got yeah. to play with uh, with you and and the boys a little bit. And I think we even did some some late night triple banjo madness you know, the, the stuff that happens yeah. at IBMA. So <laughs> I've kind of been, I've kind of been following you guys ever since. And, and it's, it's been really cool. I mean, I guess I'll fast forward to, you guys actually had a Grammy nominated album, right? Yeah. The last album we did was nominated for a Grammy. It was 2018, I think, if I remember right. Yeah. What, was, was, what was that like? That's gotta be a trip. Did you get to just, I don't know, just tell me what was involved with, with all that and what you got to do. It was totally a trip and completely unexpected. <laughs> yeah, so this was the first album we did in a studio that we're really... I've recorded at in, in Central Texas for years, and it's the first one we did with the label that we're with now, which is Blue Horn. And mm -hmm. I think that they... Well, they, I know that they were aware that we were on like the long list, you know, when they narrow it down to like the long yeah. list in every category, but they didn't tell us, which I'm kind of glad. So it was just out of the blue yeah. one day, Tony, the guitar player, uh, he called me up in the morning. Like I was still sleeping. I was like, okay, I better answer this. And he was like, dude, we're nominated for a Grammy. And I was just like, no, that's a mistake. <laughs> like they, <laughs> they got it wrong. They did They don't know. They, it's so, some other wood in something else. Or like, so it was, right. it was totally... Uh, it's the Wood Brothers. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was completely <laughs> blindsided us. Um, but yeah, it was. A, so that was when you made the short list. Is that what you mean? Like the four or five? The actual like uh, when nominees you're nominated or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was official yeah. at that point, and uh, uh, yeah, it was just yeah, crazy, completely surprising thing. And then yeah, getting to go to the Grammys and and do all that, it was uh, really yeah, just one of those crazy life experiences that you never think you're going to have. 
Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and then the we were actually going to talk. My my listeners know that I that I have sort of two different categories of of shows that I do. One that we're doing now just kind of explores your background, but another explores albums. And we had considered exploring. You have a a recent release called No Matter Where It Goes From Here, and I've noticed that on on that one at least it seems like you guys got a lot more. Improvis I mean it still has all the like trademarks of of wooden wire albums like the the great songs, the cool arrangements, but it seemed like it's a bit further out there, like a lot more improvisation. Sure. Um I don't know, is there is do you agree with that? And if so, uh what brought that about? Yeah, I'd say so. I think um I think the last album we just we had a group of songs uh that were could at you know in a way sound more traditional ish and just kind of fit that bluegrass mold that was like i i usually try and write at least one instrumental for every album if i can and in that yeah. on that album i had written what to me like i consider the closest thing to just a banjo tune i'd ever written not just some uh-huh. weird instrumental like i usually like to write uh right so yeah, that one was just way more traditional sounding. And then this one, the songs that we had were more like introspective. There aren't really any burners on this album. Most of the songs are like pretty mid-tempo or waltzes. And then there's, um, so yeah, so I think that already was sort of just, we were going to embrace it. Hey, we don't need to have some flashy fast tune or whatever. Um, and then also going back to that studio that we had just recorded the last album in where we now feel very comfortable that we wanted to, uh, just experiment more and kind of open up more experimentation and, and, uh, which led to like running our mics through a bunch of amps and effects and getting real weird with, with stuff, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, there's some interesting sound effects and like I said a lot more improvisation. Do you find that I mean it seems like you improvise quite a lot even on recordings. Yeah. Is that the case? Definitely. That's always been my main passion in music is improvisation and uh and my strongest you know skill that I have. I think my weakness is I it's really hard for me to commit to just composing a like a solo for a song or something. I just, it's so hard for me for whatever reason I I start working on something and I'm like, no, I don't want to commit to this. I'm just going to go in there and do it. And, uh, uh, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's something I've always really enjoyed. And, uh, me and the mandolin player, Billy, we, uh, we really enjoyed, we both like doing that and we both have a good rapport where we can communicate really well musically and mm-hmm. that just happens best when it's spontaneous. So yeah. we try to recreate that as best as we can in the studio. It's a really difficult question, I realize, but do you have any tips for people who want to hone their improvisational skills? How do you think you developed that ability? I think more than anything is finding a space or a group that you feel comfortable with making mistakes. And cause you have to, I think you have to play with other people. Uh, and maybe not necessarily, you don't have to, but it helps to be able to play with other people and, 
and feed off of that. These days, since it's been living in quarantine, I've embraced um one of my big influences is a piano player, Keith Jarrett. And he yeah, and he has awesome. all those like the Sun Bear concerts and stuff like that. Yeah. So I've just an hour or two of of free free improv. I love it. And so that's something that I've sort of dug in on my own more at home these days is just trying to make huh. stuff up. And and like in the beginning of the quarantine, I was going live on like Instagram late at night just doing that. Like I'll just play 10 minutes of just completely made up stuff. And my wife would maybe give me a prompt, like just like some kind of vibe. And then I would just do it. Oh, and uh, I, I don't know. I love stuff like that. So I guess you don't have to do it with other people, but it helps too. And, and like I said, I think for me, I benefited with being really young and fearless. So mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't going to get judged if I tried something really out, out there and it didn't work or whatever. So I think that helps just to have people that, you know, aren't going to judge you that you can play with that are at your playing level, you know, that you enjoy, right. you just enjoy that, that sort of playing com- conversation you can have. And I just think that you have to try stuff. You have to keep trying stuff. And if something works, try and remember it and then maybe go back and practice <laughs> it or, or, the, or, you know, like that's the tough thing. Yeah. Like, or the best that you can remember it being. And, and uh, I think yeah. for me, like, you almost catalog it in your mind. And even if you don't do it ever again, you know that like something like this happened. And I really like that. And maybe mm-hmm. you come up with something new and, uh, but yeah, I think just, just playing with people really helps a lot. I think fearless is a really good way to, to describe your style as well. I guess that's part of what I meant when it, when I said it has a lot of pep to it, I guess it, I also meant to capture like, an unexpected aspect of it, <laughs> sure. you know, a, a little bit of, you know, ban- banjo at even good banjo players at times could, can be predictable. Bluegrass is sometimes a predictable art form. Sure. So it's cool to hear people go out on those, on those limbs. Yeah. So that's cool. It leads to a lot of mistakes, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of what it takes. It goes with the territory. And, and like I said, I, it's, I admire musicians that, have more control with their improvisation. I've just never been good at that. <laughs> I just, I like to go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think is kind of a staple of your style or a particular skill that you like to use? Like if, like if some of the listeners, for example, are Trevor Smith's my hero, <laughs> how do I play like him? What, what would you, what would you tell them is like the, the nutshell way to, to maybe go further on that path. I play a lot of single string and I, people have told me that for years too. And to me, it's always, it's at times it feels like a crutch and I do like to single strings feels like a crutch? for me sometimes. Cause I can just rely on it so much. Huh. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes I try and work things out that an idea I might have single string melodic just to do it, just to be like, okay, I don't have to do it this way all the time, but single string is something that opened up a lot for me. And I I would just say, I don't know. It helps to work on that, to practice that, practice those scales, practice those positions. I I like to relate my scales to my chord positions, just like. And that's let's like, let's drill down on that. Like what a, Give us some specifics. What what positions are you talking about, and what 
what scales do you like if just an example exercise or something like sure. that? Sure. The one that, that someone might be able to use. The one that helped me the most was that one that I was just playing that I got from the, the Bale Fleck uh, banjo picking styles book. Okay. Um, so if you have it, it's in there, but if you don't, okay. essentially what you're doing is you're just playing this, the scale starting on the fifth fret on the D string and you're going to go all the we're, way up the next. And we're talking G, G major scale. G major scale. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. essentially you're going to go up the scale with that note. That's going to be your root for each position. So you'll start on that G and work your way up to the, in that. And that's one position. So work your way up from mm-hmm. the low D string up to the high D string. Then you go up to the next degree of that. And so eventually you, if you just spend a bunch of time doing that, you start to see these shapes and then it's, you can kind of morph them. And what that helped me with was just being able to play in any key. And uh, it actually reminds me something that I thought about when I was listening to the Alan Mundy episode of this podcast. Um, Uh He mentions uh, Slim Ritchie, who is someone when I first moved to Austin, I played a lot with. And that's one of the, one of the things where I got to experiment with single string and where it could help me. And playing like just playing jazz and playing in keys that I wasn't used to. So yeah, I, I think that's the big thing that immediately helped me with single string is just that it made it easier to play in any key. Now, are you are you strictly a, a thumb index single stringer, or are you one of these uh, freaks who? I wish mixes in your middle finger. There. I wish I was. <laughs> I do like. <laughs> I only do for like if I'm gonna just do like a uh, like a triplet, that kind of thing. Um, but I, yeah. I just that that's so over my head. <laughs> I've tried working on doing like the forward roll on every scale, and it's. The, the Ryan Kavanaugh method. Yeah, I wish. It's amazing. <laughs> but no, I do the I do the the Bela, like thumb index. Um and it definitely has its limitations, but I don't know. It's easy for me to work in too with, with banjo rolls so that I can try and blend those as best as I can. Yeah, nice. So let's let's get into your instrument and your gear. What what's your primary banjo of choice that you use? Uh well right now I'm playing uh a banjo that I'm borrowing from our, uh, the guy who owns our label, Den Biable. This is a Gibson, I think it's like a mid nineties custom Granada RB3 hybrid. It's really what? weird. It's super weird. Uh, so, so ex- explain, explain this. What, uh, I mean, the fingerboard looks like an RB3. Yeah. So it's got like that RB3, uh, the, yeah, the fingerboard, the rosewood and the, the, uh, inlay pattern and then it's mahogany right uh and it's got this weird dark finish that isn't black it looks black but uh it's, it's it is very dark yeah some kind of almost black brown and then it's just got the gold all the gold parts <laughs> of a granada so oh yeah it's engraved and everything right uh is no that, it's not engraved though right? and it's not engraved it's just oh i thought i saw the armrest it's okay, just gold plated no the armrest okay. unfortunately i should take it off because i'm wearing it out all that gold plating's falling off <laughs> i should put a different one on but no this is what i've been playing lately the one the other banjo that i have is the one that i've played 
most of my career, which is a, a Rich and Taylor, Sonny Osborne model with a Huber tone ring. Yeah, those are the main ones that I play. So what, is there something about this one? I mean, without without prying into whatever your arrangement is, but like, is there a reason you're borrowing this or you just liked it? And uh, yeah, He just, he had it and he wasn't using it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it never hurts to have another banjo on stage, which, uh, yeah. So another thing we've done and on the last two records, I've done a lot of songs in low E or low F tuning. I'm nothing compared to you, baby. I'm nothing compared to you, baby. But I'll keep on hanging around because you like it that way. I was gonna ask about that too. Yeah, yeah. There's some some low tune stuff. I've integrated that too. So in the live show, it's good to have another banter to keep in that tuning. Um, one of the songs on the last record, I, I I don't think I did this on this record, but on the last record, uh, on I think a couple of songs, I layered them. So I'd have one part that's a standard tuning, and then another part that's the low E, so, and then usually like oh. we'll like pan it. So and it's way in the background, but it just creates this low kind of warbly rhythm in the background. Oh, that's cool. I'm gonna have to listen more carefully for that. That's cool. Yeah, on the last and album, you, you yeah. Sa- and go go through the rest of your preferences in terms of like picks or bridges or heads or anything you that you're uh, prefer in that way. I mean, I don't know. I'm, it's I guess that's one of those things that everybody's always tinkering with. Uh, I don't know what's on this banjo. I love. It's got a I like a really like thick frosted head. Um, mm-hmm. And usually I'll just get, get them from uh, Huber. I usually just get the ones that they sell on their site. Cause I just like their, the frost that they get on theirs. Even though I know the yeah. Remo's, I just, I think that they have a different specification. And so, well, it's thicker. Yeah, it's thicker. Huber's thing is that it's thicker. So yeah, if you, if you like that uh, tack, which, which is what I enjoy too. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's, that's why you like that. Totally. One. And then, uh, this bridge is a Purcell bridge, I think. Yeah. Uh, what is it? 11 sixteenths. Okay. So normally I just play the standard five eighths, but I've been wanting to be able to dig in a little bit more, you know, uh, without, yeah. without, uh, it sort of fretting out or anything. Um, so that, so I switched to that and, uh, it was definitely harder to play for a while, but. Once I got comfortable with it, I love it. I just have more dynamic range with the, the taller bridge. I know a lot of people, some people use way tall bridges. Well, and especially for someone like yourself who does so much single string, there's a risk that increasing the action could really fumble you up with that, I think. But you didn't, you didn't notice that too badly? No, I, like I said, it was, it was weird at first, but I forced myself to get used to it. And then once I did, I got to a point where I didn't even notice 
the like, right. Mainly the hard part was just the action. You know, my left hand was getting more of a workout, but as far as the right hand goes, it's helped more than anything just to be able to have a, a bigger range from playing really soft. to to when you're projecting and, that was something that I was just always missing with this shorter bridge was it kind of felt like it was stuck in a smaller range, almost like the way compression works, you know, on audio, like where it's just, right. I didn't, if I really wanted to get a little bit more umph, I didn't have it. Or if I wanted to play super quiet, you know, there wasn't that range between the, the two. And, and that was the main thing I wanted to get with this. And, and I've liked it. My other banjo has a five eighths uh, Samson bridge on it. Okay. And is that your low tune banjo? Yeah, so it's got like a mahogany bridge. Okay, yeah, that can really that really changes it up, doesn't Definitely. it? Definitely, and that banjo is a maple banjo too, but it sounds really deep for a maple. It always has sounded really deep for a maple mm. banjo. I don't know why. Uh, yeah. And then the picks I use uh, the National MP2s, and I think these are the same stainless steel, but I like the the nickel ones more. Um, and then. Okay. Just the JD Crow blue chip for the right thumb pick. That's that's the setup I've been liking these days. What about what about your stage setup? I know when you like on the most recent record, there's a certain amount of effects, some some echoes, some reverbs, maybe maybe even something crazier. Do you use that live as well? I don't currently. That I want to. <laughs> I, I need to get okay. into the the pedal realm. Uh, and actually, I have like toyed with some i've had a hard time finding ones that i like on the banjo acoustically so in the studio some of those were um vintage tape like analog tape delays Yeah, those are sweet. <laughs> those are expensive too, though. Yeah, you can tell. And just like tell, a hassle time. to carry around. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's an area that I want to explore more as far as like effects that I really like. When we do it live, um, there are some songs that uh, we travel with an engineer, and he'll he'll use effects from the board. And okay, uh, so far I've liked that sound better, but I would like to have the ability to have me at it exactly the way I want it, you know, but as far as just be more creative. Yeah. But sonically it's just worked coming through like the board. It just sounds really cool Mm -hmm. that way. And less, less like, I don't know, fake or something, you know, it's, it's a hard thing with banjos, I think to get, get the sound that you want from doing that. Um, We did use some digital effects as well on the album, a couple digital effects on the banjo uh, for like a course effect, which, 
I like the weirdest sounding course effect anyway. Like if it sounds fake or, or like digital, I'm cool with that on the banjo. Harkening back to your lo-fi keyboard yeah. uh, prog rock days or whatever. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, so what do you use then, as as far as like pickups or microphones? Yeah, what I use uh, the Fishman pickup, um, and I've used that for a long time. I love it, uh, and just the standard rare earth. Yes. Yeah, I don't even call it the shim and the, and I don't even know if they still call it the rare earth or not. I have one right here. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't know either. I thought I'm a little out of the game myself. I thought they maybe changed the name. Yeah, it just says the like Fishman Classic Series banjo pickup. I, I think All that's right, what they call enough. it now, and I love that. And then I use um, the DI I use is called a Red Eye. Oh yeah, which those are those are made by a guy in town who's one of the sweetest people I've ever met, and is just a huge music enthusiast and. He used to host these these jams called the Ham Jam, and that's where I first met. Okay. That's where I first met uh, Slim Richie, and so and that's in Austin. Yeah, uh, and it was it was mainly like jazz players that would go, and I would go and just crash their hang. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this guy uh, Darren, he makes these red eyes, and he's he I think he had like a microchip company or something like that, and made a just was super rich and retired early. And so this was something he knew. He kept hearing all these fiddle players and he hated their tone. So he's like, I'll just make a, a DI that works better, that sounds better. And I love it. It's 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 one of the better one of the DIs that's worked better for me than any other for the banjo. Yeah, it's pretty stripped down, right? Like not a lot of bells and whistles. It's just kind of a good clean clean. That's signal. it, yeah. It's a, it's it's a solid, clean signal and uh and then it has like a boost on it. That's basically it. Another thing that I really dig about your band is just the balance. I mean, I already uh, mentioned that it was maybe increasingly improvisational, but I think another hallmark of you guys is that you just have really cool arrangements in terms of adding some unison licks here or a, a change in the rhythm style there, or maybe a, a little interlude between verses that really changes the feel and it it just gives it a just a good a good musical musical trajectory you know th- that's the kind of stuff that like separates the the interesting to listen to bands from the standard bluegrass festival bands that will just hammer through some roll in my sweet baby's yeah. arms or something like yeah, that yeah totally talk talk a bit about that and and how you guys come up with those arrangements and i don't know what what do you what do you think about yeah. that yeah i mean i think that we've we've all uh, tend to connect on just uh, the approach. Um, so we demo the songs a lot. Sometimes even on the road, we'll record a demo of a version of a song in, in the hotel room or something and, and, and sort of hash it out over and over and over again and try and find what suits the song the best. All the guys in the band are really good, have like a really good singer songwriter tendency I'm the only one who doesn't really do that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. we like to embrace the song and, and, uh, some songs. Yeah. It just, it makes more sense to have to me, what could be almost reminiscent of like an old time song where there's, you know, the words and then there's just the hook, you know, the, the, the tune that goes with it. And they're very hooky. Yeah. That's, that's another element. Of yeah. It too. And so yeah. some songs that just seems to work better than like 
hey, time for some solos, you know, like some songs that they just don't need that. They just need uh-huh. like me and the mandolin player just playing the melody in unison a lot of times. Yeah, not even like in harmony or anything, just just that here we are, just it feels good, it suits the song. And then some songs need to just like go off a cliff and, and end up in in, <laughs> in space somewhere and and yeah. embrace just like let's just not know what happens, you know, let's just and let's just really embrace that and see where it goes. Uh-huh. And and then usually what's interesting, you'll you'll find that like if you're going into some kind of like free jam in a song, you start to sort of naturally create an arrangement. And yeah. then so some songs if you've gigged it enough. Yeah, yeah, some songs that's that's great. And then other ones, me and Billy tend to agree when we need to just like derail it even more. <laughs> So, well, he, 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 is he your partner in like space exploration? Definitely. I think that, to, okay. that Tony and Dom are holding down the rhythm while we just go nuts and, and see what happens. Yeah, uh, cool. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's fun to have that spectrum too, where, I'll, I'll, yeah, I think a lot of the songs, we, we, we don't want it to just be like, well, sure. You could have a solo here. A lot of the songs, it just feels better to not do that and, and think of a, another way to, to, to just, add to the song and not take away from it. Yeah. Well, it's cool that you're all, they have a group that's willing to go along with both ends of that spectrum, the arranged and also the you and Billy catapulting <laughs> everything into, into oblivion. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. Well, did we forget to touch on anything that, that you wanted to talk about in terms of like your progression as a player, your personal style or anything about the band? definitely want to give you the last word on anything else that you'd care to say i hope people check out the album <laughs> that just came out but no i don't know just uh curious to see what ends up happening with the music world after this pandemic and and how we're able to support each other and what's going to be kind of a regrowth i think yeah we're all we're all doing our best to find our way and People are getting really good at these live stream concerts, but uh, man, it sure would be nice to to be all together in person too. Definitely. Can't wait for that. Cool. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, people listening to your album, give us all the internet stuff that people need to know to, to come find yeah, you. Yeah, just uh, you can just Google Wood and Wire or Wood and Wire Band. Um, and then it's woodandwireband.com is the website. And that can link you to where the album is it's on spotify and apple and all the outlets and it's all the places yeah yeah excellent okay well hey thanks a lot trevor yeah thank you yeah looking forward to seeing you back on the road as soon as possible yeah totally likewise thanks everyone for listening that was trevor smith of the band wood and wire you heard some sound clips, and in order, they were Wingding, performed by Wood and Wire, New South Africa by Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and the rest were all Wood and Wire songs, Eliza, Can't Keep Up With You, and Clamps Shoot. Special thanks to today's Patreon supporters of the day, Dan Shaw, the banjo player from the Millbillies, and uh, Runnin' Julie Colton. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a Patreon supporter yourself, Or just follow me on all the social medias and everything, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you all there. And if not there, then back here again for the next episode. So everyone take care, stay safe, and uh, see you next time.